Hey guys, just before we get started, I wanted to kind of put a swear warning because I realize I do in fact swear a lot and I just kind of want to make sure if any kitties are listening that uh, you should probably stop now if unless you're a mature child. And also I'd like to say, uh, sorry mom, <laughs> let's get started with the episode. Hey guys, welcome back to the Long May Shireen podcast. I'm Aiden, I'm your host for this podcast. So, Wow. <laughs> I have had an interesting week, as you guys heard on the last episode, obviously. I've moved. I've moved into university. I am in my dorm right now. Um, I have to be, like I said last time, I have to be a little quiet because I don't want people thinking I'm weird talking to myself when I'm actually talking to you guys. But yeah, God, I've been so freaking busy. As you guys saw with uh, the last episode, I obviously had to uh, delay it because I was moving and I couldn't record on the go. I mean, I suppose I could have maybe recorded on my phone, but I didn't really want to do that. I kind of wanted to uh, enjoy the vacation I had before school because oh, it's it's been hectic. Like, I haven't gotten any homework yet, but I'm just like, it's, it's like, it's like the calm before the storm. Like, I know I'm going to get homework soon, I just don't know when I'm going to get the homework. So that's like terrifying because I've obviously got to write scripts for this podcast and I don't know when I'm going to have the time. I really hope that I can keep on doing the bi-weekly schedule. We'll see how that turns out. I really don't want to take a hiatus to write more stuff and also do my homework, but that might be a reality. I'll keep you guys updated on whether or not... Uh, I'll be able to uh, do more episodes. I do have quite a few episodes. I have episodes planned up until my birthday, at least. And I've got like half a script after that. But like other than that, I've got till then to write new stuff. That's just like terrifying because I don't have anything done. But I hope I can. All right. So let's get on to the topic at hand today. We are talking about Sophia Palaulog. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's probably not right. It's it's Her last name's Greek. And I haven't been able to pronounce it ever since I decided that I was going to do her for this episode. And as a joke, I've been calling her Sophia Lawawa because that's what her last name sounds like to me. I'm sorry if I'm offending any Greek people. Y'all are cool. I just can't pronounce your last names. I actually have a Greek uh, professor this year, and I can't pronounce her last name either, nor can I spell it. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, Sophia, is she's very, very cool. I actually found out about her uh, from a YouTube video. So I, I probably mentioned this before, but there's this guy, Matt Baker, who does, he, he's the runner of the Useful Charts YouTube channel. And he does like all these different family trees. And usually when he's going through the family trees, I like to take note of interesting women that he does when he goes down family trees. And that's how I ended up finding about about Sophia uh, because I thought it was very interesting that she was a Byzantine princess who married into the Russian royal family before the Russians were really Russians. I'll explain that later about why the Russians weren't really Russians. But I found out that she is in fact the grandmother of Ivan the Terrible. So that's why I found out about her. And I was like, well, the woman who's the grandmother of Ivan the Terrible has to have an interesting story. So that's why I decided to do it, do her today. So I hope you guys are excited for this one. I know I am. She was a really interesting topic to research. Let's get into it. 
Okay, so Sophia was born as Zoe at some point in 1449 to Thomas Palalgos and his wife, Catherine Zachariah. And she was born in the city of Moria, which is in Greece. Now, she was the second of her parents' four children. Uh, now, since we don't know her birthday, which sucks, you feel like, especially like this far, in, like it's the middle of the 1400s, you'd think that they'd know her birthday, but I guess not. I thought it'd be interesting to discuss the origins of her very Greek last name because I personally found the Palalgos is really interesting. Now, no one is really sure exactly where her family originated from. Uh, some say that they were just like a Greek family. Some people say that they were actually Italian and had some origins in ancient Rome. But to be fair, no one's really sure. It's kind of like a maybe <laughs> guessing game. Now, uh, whatever the case, over the centuries, they started kind of like slithering, slithering their way into power by occupying powerful offices in the Byzantine Empire. They continually married into powerful Byzantine families to make themselves like look more legitimate. But how they ended up being on the throne of the Byzantine Empire is like even more crazy and I think really fits their whole family narrative. So about two and a half centuries before Zoe was born, her ancestor Michael was in a pretty powerful position in the empire, but he was also hugely mistrusted by the ruling family at the time, and uh, try as they might, they couldn't get rid of the fucker, so they tried accusing him of treason. Somehow, Michael got out of there scot-free. I, I don't know how he did that, but he totally, like, brushed off the accusations of treason. Um, and even though no one trusted him, he ended up marrying the emperor's grandniece, and which gave him infinitely more power than he had before, until he eventually decided to uh, go chill with the enemy of the Byzantine Empire, the Turks. He spent a little bit of time with them, but he was eventually invited back by the uh, old emperor's son. That emperor ended up dying, uh, and this son made the dumb mistake of trusting Michael, and when that emperor died, he was succeeded by his eight-year-old son. This kid's name was John. And, you know, what a better way for Michael to get power than controlling a eight-year-old boy who can't make decisions for himself. Pretty smart, right? Now, literally less than, like, a week after the Emperor dies, Michael stages a coup <laughs> to get control over little eight-year-old John, and he wins, like, overwhelmingly to become the kid's legal guardian and by wins I mean he probably had people murdered to make that happen but the point is he became John's legal guardian now a few years later when John would have been like he was about 12 13 something like that uh, Michael named himself co-emperor with John which didn't end well for anyone except Michael because a few years after he became co-emperor with little John uh, Michael was like yeah, I really don't want to share power with you anymore. And when you grow up, I just, I, I know you're going to be dangerous. You're going to resent me. So on this kid's, like, it was his 12 or, 12th or 11th birthday. I can't remember which one it was. He has little John arrested, takes away his throne, blinds him. Like, he literally takes away this kid's sight. I don't know how he did it, but he, like, jabbed his eyes out or, get, or something and throws... Poor little 11-year-old John in a monastery for good measure so that he can never come back. I was so shocked when I read that. Like, Michael, he deposed an 11-year-old and then went through the trouble of blinding him so he couldn't see all on his birthday. 
worst fucking 11th birthday ever. I mean, that sucks for, like, poor old John. But, you know, it worked for Michael. So, like, good for him. He was sole emperor after that. And his family was the ruling dynasty of the Byzantine Empire for the next two and a half centuries. So, I hope this story about Zoe's ancestor, Michael, gives you a bit of context for what Zoe's family family is like and where she comes from and where she her general personality is at. Okay, so now that we know where Zoe's family came from, let's talk about her parents, starting with her mom, because of course, ladies first. So Zoe's mother's name was Catherine, and she was the only legitimate child of a very powerful Italian merchant family, who was actually really close to uh, Zoe's uh, Paolalogos family over the years. And they were about as scheming and ambitious as Zoe's family was, so her parents were like a really, really perfect match. Her father was this dude named Thomas, and he was like a full-fledged Byzantine prince as the son of Emperor Manuel II. But he was also a third son, so no one really expected much from him. His oldest brother, John, was nice enough to make him the equivalent of a governor in the province of Moria, which was pretty nice of him, and that's why Zoe was born there. Uh, But... Thomas and John, they didn't really get along well, and he also didn't really get along with his other brother, Constantine, who unfortunately ended up being the next emperor when John died with no children, and that didn't end well for anyone. Now, I gotta give you guys a little bit of historical context. It's time for the historical context part of the show, because I haven't explained what the Byzantine Empire is, and I feel like I should probably explain it to those who don't know what the entity of the Byzantine Empire is. So generally, you know, we think of the Roman Empire as like falling in this like dramatic fashion and that it like caused the Dark Ages, but like that's not exactly correct. Half of the Roman Empire ended up surviving in the East. So like Greece area, Turkey, places like that, you know? Um, And they ended up calling themselves uh, the Eastern Roman Empire. They considered themselves still Roman. It's like, the Roman Empire never ended, and it was like a really, really powerful empire for several centuries, and Zoe's family ended up coming to power right when the empire was on decline, since the Byzantine Empire had been beaten up by the Fourth Crusade, not to mention they literally had the Ottoman Empire rocking their shit to the point that the only territory they owned when Zoe was a little kid was the city of Constantinople, which was the capital, and like some of Greece which is sad because their empire used to be so big that it stretched from, like, it was, like, northern Greece to Egypt and, like, a little bit into the Middle East. Like, it was impressive. But at this point, when Zoe was a kid, it was, like, all crumbling down. They weren't the same as they used to be. Now, when Zoe was four, her uncle Constantine was emperor, as I mentioned, and even though he was, like, a pretty competent leader, he couldn't stop the fact that the Ottomans wanted what was left of the Byzantine Empire, and what was left of the Byzantine Empire was Constantinople. Now, the fall of Constantinople changed Zoe's life, so I will obviously have to talk about it, even though she wasn't there. Now, basically, this dude named Sultan Mehmed of the Ottoman Empire had been, like, conquering the heck out of what the Byzantines used to own, and obviously he wanted to complete his nice little Byzantine collection, so he went for it, and he won. He won hard. He he crushed the Byzantines at the siege of Constantinople. And he ended up re- renaming the city Istanbul, which is what it's known as today in modern-day Turkey. 
Now, after her family got the news that the city had fallen, and by the way, uh, Zoe's uncle Constantine had died at the uh, siege, her family basically went into full lockdown mode in her hometown of Moria because her father and his younger brother couldn't work together for five fucking seconds to get the empire back on track. So for like the next seven years, she probably watched as her like father unsuccessfully tried to bring back their empire until the uh, people over th- who overthrew her uncle quite literally came to her front door. They came a knocking when she was about 11 and they ended up attacking Moria. Now, luckily... Her, her parents, and her two younger brothers, Andreas and Manuel, were able to escape to Corfu, which was also in Greece. Uh, they stayed on this island, the island of Corfu, for about two years, hiding from the Ottomans while her father tried to uh, sweet talk other kingdoms into helping them. Uh, and one of the kingdoms that they ended up talking to was the Pope. He seemed pretty interested in helping, in fact, so much that he invited Thomas to Rome and recognized him as the official heir to the Byzantine Empire. Now, in my head, it's like kind of weird that the Pope wanted to help Thomas, considering that Thomas and the Byzantine Empire, they were Orthodox Christians. And of course, you know, the Pope's Catholic. But, you know, hey, he maybe he thought Thomas would be like an easy conversion if he helped. Like, hey, maybe he'll convert from or- Orthodoxy to Catholicism if I help him. But unfortunately, the Pope never even got that chance because tragedy stuck for the Palalagosas. Um, Zoe's mother died on the 16th of August, 1461, in Corfu. And when her mother died, Zoe was primarily raised by servants on Corfu, with her father like occasionally visiting from Rome. She basically had no family left, not to mention she was technically the oldest in her family because... Uh, I noticed Zoe's older sister, Helena, who was, by the way, 18 years older than Zoe, had been married for, like, a while at this point. So, like, they never saw each other. She was all alone. She was the boss in the house. She was the mom with her little brothers on Corfu. And, you know, it was, like, okay, but, like, obviously lonely until it got worse because Zoe can't have a moment of peace. Um, In 1465... Uh, their father Thomas sent a letter to his three children that he was dying and they had to come to Rome, but they didn't end up making it. All three little children arrived a day late after their father died on May 12th, 1465. And, you know, God, they must have been devastated. Like, they never got to see their father often. He just, like, suddenly died out of nowhere. But the Pope at the time, there was a different Pope than the original Pope. He took serious pity on these three orphaned Byzantine royal children and because of his partnership with their father he formally adopted all three of them and he was like come and live with me come and stay in Rome come stay in the Vatican I I can provide you with whatever you want and you know it was probably the most amount of security she had felt in years so like obviously she accepted and from there she moved to Rome with her little brother's Okay, so you guys know normally with the format of the show that I'd like to that I like to talk about the education uh, of the women I cover because I think education is you know very important to women. It makes them better people. It makes them smarter, especially in times like this when you need to be smart to survive. And but I decided to save it for now because I wanted to get a, 
out of the way all the historical context before this and also the tragedy of the first part of her life. So let's talk about it now because she actually mainly got most of her education while in Rome. So let's talk about it. Now, you have to remember, she was a teenage girl in the middle of Renaissance Italy. Like, this would have been literally the best possible place for her to be educated. Like, this was the place to be in the middle of the 1400s. She had access to mountains of books, art, and, like, the world's finest museums right at her fingertips. And all she had to do was ask for it. She was also lucky enough to get the friendship friendship of her teacher, who also worked as a cardinal within the church, because... He, he was really chill. He paid for her servants, her doctor, her foreign language professors and translators because she spoke Greek and everyone around them would have been speaking like Italian or Latin, which she didn't speak at all, especially when she first got there. Now, the biggest influence the Cardinal had on her was him converting her and her brothers from orthodoxy to Catholicism. So she would have had like really, really good religious education and like full access to the Pope, which is, you know, about as good as you can get for your religion. Like, imagine having the Pope as, like, your own personal priest. Like, he's direct access to God. That's so cool. And also, this was about as good as you could get for a female education at the time. She also would have been taught embroidery, because, you know, that's important for sewing circles, as you guys recall. Now, as for what she looked like, believe it or not, we actually have some really great descriptions of her especially as a teenager. She was described as being very pretty with pale skin and large expressive eyes. Um, apparently she was five foot two, so she was a short queen. Go her. Uh, not to mention all the reports I've read is that she was about as intelligent and crafty as her ancestors, which would be good for her considering what her future health. Also, she gives me big Slytherin vibes, big Slytherin vibes. Now, so about two years into her stay in Rome, she turns 18, and immediately the Pope is like, girl, we need to get you a husband. So he starts husband shopping for her, and he starts to come back with some great up options. At first, he was like, hey, what about King James of Cyprus? But neither he or Zoe were into it, so that ended up dissolving. Uh, they tried to engage her to, like, a minor Italian prince, and Zoe was like, yeah, no, I'm so much better than him. I don't want to marry him. So that ended up dissolving. Uh, they tried to engage her to the new king of France at the time, but she also didn't like that. She didn't want to go to France. So the Pope was like, fuck, what do we do with her? <laughs> but he was kind of missing the point about why Zoe was rejecting all these marriage proposals. The thing is, what all these men had in common was that they were all Catholic, and even though she was a practicing Catholic, she didn't seem too interested in being married to one. But by sheer coincidence, that same year, the Grand Prince of Moscow's wife died. And after his time of mourning, he decided to find a new wife, since he only had one son, and Zoe was, like, literally perfect for him. Now, the idea to marry Zoe to the Grand Prince Ivan was probably thought up by her good friend the Cardinal, but it was officially proposed to him by the Pope in 1469 when Zoe was 20 years old. And the no negotiations lasted for about three years from there. Um, by the way, they only ended up taking three years because everyone had to, like, go back and forth from, like, Moscow, which is, like, is a, is a four-month trek one way in that time. So that's really why it took three years, not because, like, it was such rigorous negotiations. It's just because Moscow and Rome are so far. Um, anyway, probably one of the main reasons the Pope was so into this marriage for Zoe was because the Grand Prince Ivan was orthodox like she had been, and he was hoping that Zoe would be able to convert Ivan and unify orthodoxy and Catholicism for the first time, and 
centuries, um, but it didn't really work out that way, which we'll talk about later. For now, let's talk about the marriage negotiations and her bomb-ass dowry. So when the negotiations started, Zoe's friend, the cardinal, traveled to Moscow himself to get the official declaration of the engagement from Ivan. Now, he seemed pretty optimistic about the match, as did his mother, Marie, and later in that year, a portrait of Zoe was presented to Ivan, and apparently he was like, wow, she's hot. <laughs> and his entire court was like, yeah, she's hot. But it really sucks that this portrait wasn't preserved because I would love to see what it looked like. Also because it was probably painted by one of the Pope's like awesome court painters, like in the middle of the Re Renaissance, I'm sure it was like a really awesome portrait. Sucks it doesn't exist anymore. Um, as for her dowry, she was giving 60,000 ducats by the Pope, which must be a lot of money for it to be mentioned, um, as well as like a whole bunch of jewels. But the most interesting thing to me is that she like took a lot of books with her. Like she took copies of Plato's works and Homer's, which were really, really expensive. Like books were like a huge commodity back then. So for her to have them and bring them was like really expensive and cool. Uh, so these were included in part of her dowry and they were eventually handed down to her children. Now in January of 1472, Ivan's delegate made his way to Rome to collect Zoe and bring her to Moscow for the first time. Uh, he arrived in June, but before they left, she was officially married by proxy with Ivan's delegate standing in for him at St. Peter's Basilica, which is such a cool place to get married. I want to get married at St. Peter's Basilica, even though I'm not Catholic. It's, it's just because I want to because it's pretty. Now, we have talked about proxy marriages before, but I will explain it again. Basically, it was a way of insurance for marriages, especially politically important ones, where one spouse would be present and would be married to a stand-in for their spouse if that person couldn't be there. So, like, legally, they were already married before they met, and that's what happened to Zell. Now, there were even some cool people at the proxy wedding, like Clarice Orsini, who was the wife of Lorenzo the Magnificent, and he's the ancestor of the famous Catherine de' Medici who we've already done. There was also another queen there. Uh, Catherine of Bosnia was also attendant at this proxy wedding. So like, that's pretty cool. So, you know, all in all good fake wedding. And uh, from there, she got to leave the very restrictive papal court, which she didn't like, by the way. And she headed off to Moscow to meet her new husband. Oh, that was a good ASMR. Didn't you guys enjoy that? Sorry, my throat hurts. Anyway. Back to Sophia. So after her wedding, she was accompanied by the cardinal and the rest of her entourage, entourage for the trip to Moscow. She had an entourage. It's really cool, right? So her and her entourage boarded a ship. Uh, they went around the continent of Europe. And I'm, you guys can't see it, but I'm putting up quotes around continent because we all know Europe really shouldn't be a continent because it's, it's tiny. It's only called a continent because Europeans inventing continents. Anyway, uh, they went around Europe uh, and they traveled to the North Sea, past Denmark, through the Baltic Sea, and finally they landed at a place called Raval, which is now in modern-day Estonia, but back then it was part of the Rus, which I'll explain what that is. Now, uh, from there, she and her entourage took carriages to make it to Moscow, and on her way, she was like, she was a hit with the people. Like, the people of the Rus loved her. Pretty much every town she went to on the way to Moscow, she would, like, personally come out to the peasants and just, like, other regular people and, like, thank them. Be like, thank you so much for coming to see me. And, and by the time she made it to Moscow in November of 1472, which, by the way, why would they do this so late in the year? Like, oh, my God. It must have been cold. 
It absolutely must have been. Anyway, by the time she ended up in Moscow, she was insanely popular with the people of the Rus. Now, she officially met her husband on the day of their in-person wedding at the Assumption Cathedral in Moscow, which is beautiful, by the way. I googled it. You guys should google it. I'll give you a minute. Did you google it? Isn't it pretty? Yeah. So, it's, it's so gorgeous. It's got all this Russian art in there and, like, all these murals. It's, like, the most perfect example of like an orthodox Russian church like ever. Now at her wedding, she officially changed her name to Sophia, but I'm still going to call her Zoe for simplicity's sake. And also I like the name Zoe. Now by this point, I'm sure Zoe's like adopted Pope dad was like over the moon since she made it to Moscow. She didn't die. And that Zoe and Ivan were officially married. And he was like probably patiently waiting for Zoe to send like a pigeon or something and say that she had succeeded in converting her husband to uh, Catholicism. But boy, was he wrong on that front, guys. Oh my God. So like immediately after the wedding, Zoe pulled an Uno reverse card out of her pocket and she converted straight back to orthodoxy. Like, obviously, it's a little bit different. She was a Greek Orthodox, but now she's Russian Orthodox, but they have a lot of similarities anyway. Uh, but the Pope was like, um, Zoe, honey, what are you doing? And she was like, sorry, new, new phone, who dis? I can't hear you. I'm in Moscow. Good luck with the church. <laughs> and for the rest of For the rest of Zoe's life, she remained a devout Orthodox Russian Christian. Like, that that's some petty shit. I love that. (laughs) Like, this part of the story really gets me because she really pulled a fast one in the fucking Pope. Like, she was like, oh, yeah, I'm totally going to convert my new husband to Catholicism. Okay, bye. I'll see you. And I really admire this about her, like how she, she had the balls to do this. I'm so proud of her. Now that Zoe is officially married to Ivan, let's get to know her hubby a bit because he's actually, he's a really fascinating dude, guys. Like, you have no idea. So he was born in 1440, which means he was about nine years older than her, which, like, isn't a terrible age gap. He would have been about, he would have been in his, like, mid-30s and she would have been in, like, her early 20s, which, like, isn't terrible. Like, it could have been worse. I could have married her to a 50-year-old. Anyway, um, he initially served as, like, a co-monarch with his father because his father was actually blind. But uh, when his father died in 1462, he became the sole Grand Prince of Moscow. So, so far, he had been changing how his country was viewed on the world stage because before Zoe married him, um, he hadn't really been able to uh, get his enemies under control, but when they got together, like, suddenly his power increased a lot, Um, and he was expanding his little itsy-bitsy principality pretty fast from, obviously, just Moscow. Now, I have to give you guys, like, a bit of historical context on Russia at the time, because it was really, really different than what we think of Russia nowadays, and even when the empire was at its full height. Now, for example, it wasn't even called Russia yet. It was known as the Rus, as I've mentioned. Uh, And also the rulers weren't czars yet. They were grand princes. And for centuries, they had been like constantly under the thumb of like more powerful empires like the Mongols. But Ivan really, he was was a dreamer. He wanted to change the way his kingdom was viewed. And we will see that very soon with the awesome new changes he makes to the Rus with the help of his lovely, lovely wife. 
Okay, so let's talk about how Zoe impacted the Moscow court and her life as Grand Princess of the Rus. Now, her new country would have been like a really, really big culture shock for someone who had spent years of her life in like the world's premier cultural center. The Rus would have been like a huge place to adjust to, even though her hubby was like, he was currently working on like modernizing and changing the Rus. Um, and while he was doing that, she decided to make some changes of her own. She brought in some Italian architects, artisans, masons, and other special specialists to rebuild many of the stone structures in Moscow and replace old wooden buildings. And essentially, she wanted to beautify the city. Like, it was, like, so dirty and made of wood, which was a fire hazard. <laughs> so she was like, let's bring in stone masons to fix this. Um, additionally, Ivan followed her example and had gardens and mansions built especially for Zoe's personal use. And he built them in the Byzantine style so that she would feel more at home. What a good guy. I love Ivan. Now, Zoe and Ivan, they had a really good partnership. And for the most part, it seems like their marriage was one of respect and trust. Like, she pretty much affected some of the most significant decisions in his life. And he also gave her a lot of autonomy, which, like, wasn't normal back then. Uh, for example, unlike other women in his court, she didn't have to seclude herself uh, because and basically the Russian equivalent of a harem, like all the other ladies. She was also with her husband a lot, which, like, obviously sounds weird, like, why, like, wives are with their husbands a lot now. Uh, but that just wasn't a thing. Like, normally wives wouldn't hang out with their husbands in Moscow very often unless, you know, they wanted to have kids. Um, she also did a lot of things that more Western queens were doing, like queens of France were doing. She greeted foreign dignitaries with Ivan, which was huge since women didn't do that ever. Uh, and there were also other two big things that Zoe influenced with Ivan, and the first being the introduction of Byzantine culture that she grew up with, and she introduced this straight to Moscow. She changed policy and court etiquette to make Moscow more like home and like all the other cultured courts of Europe, and Ivan, he was he was down with this. After all, he had married her for the prestige of her Byzantine blood, and he wanted to emulate them in a lot of ways, essentially turning Moscow into the Third Rome, which was how he referred to it. And he was also the first Russian monarch to use the title of Tsar, which is essentially Russian for Caesar, so they're trying to go with that whole Rome theme. Uh, the other thing she influenced was foreign relations, mainly with the Rus' oppressor, oppressors, the Mongols. Now, uh, for context, they had been harassing Eastern Europe for like well over two centuries. <coughs> Sorry, one second. <laughs> and the Rus was continually getting their asses handed to them by the Mongols. So they eventually had to start paying them tribute to get them to fuck off and like not burn down their cities. But Zoe thought this was fucking stupid. This is Russia. We should be doing something. And <laughs> Ivan eventually was like, yeah, you're right. That is fucking stupid. <laughs> I am the czar. And he announced that he was going to stop paying them. And that didn't go down with the, well, with the Mongols. They were like, excuse me, but in Mongolian. So <laughs> the Mongols eventually decided to invade the Rus to teach Ivan a lesson. And they did do that successfully. They got pretty close to Moscow. So Zoe and uh, the children they had at the time, which I, I will talk about in a second, uh, they had to flee to another city for safety. And actually, believe it or not, uh, when Ivan wanted his family to leave, one of Ivan's like courtiers told him that his attachment to his wife and children would be his destruction, which sounds fucking dumb. Like, what is he supposed to do? Like, not like his wife and children? Like, shut up, 
shut the fuck up, Dimitri, or whatever the fuck your name is. <gasps> Just because you hate your wife and children doesn't mean Ivan has to. Ivan is a good man. He he knows what's up. I like Ivan. <laughs> anyway, back on topic. Uh, luckily, Ivan defeated the Mongol horde. He rocked their shit. And for the first time in two centuries, the Mongols retreated and officially left Eastern Europe. So, woo, go Ivan, go Russia, woo. Okay, guys, now it's time to talk about babies, specifically the babies that Ivan and Zoe had. And spoiler alert, uh, she was really fucking fertile, so there's quite a few kids to talk about. Now, uh, her first two babies uh, were born about two and three years after the wedding. Both of them were girls. Uh, The first was named Elena, and the second was Fyodosha. Unfortunately, they both died in 1476, but not to fear. Zoe was pregnant that year, and she gave birth to her first baby that would live to adulthood. It was a girl named Helena, which I imagine she named after her older sister, Helena. But uh, since Helena wasn't a boy, they obviously had to try again. Uh, But for some reason, she had trouble getting pregnant again. So they went to a church to pray for a son. And while she was there, she had a vision that the saint of that specific church uh, was presenting her with her long-awaited son. And soon enough, she was pregnant again, and she gave birth to her first son in 1479, who she named Vasily. Um, after that, she had babies like gangbusters again. Like, apparently, there was no issues after that. Um, after Vasily, she had two boys in a row named Yuri and Dimitri. And then she had Eudokia and Feodosia. Um, and her last two babies were uh, boys named uh Simeon and Andre. So that's like 11 babies in 15 years, which I've got to say is pretty impressive. It's not like as fast as some of the other women we've talked about who have a baby every year, but she was trying. She she, she got a break. She deserved it. Now, Zoe really loved her children and she was incredibly ambitious for them. Um, still, Succession for her was never really an issue for her to think about because, as as I mentioned earlier, Ivan, he had a son from his first wife, also named Ivan. Um, and even though Zoe didn't get along uh, with him for the most part uh, because of a particular, particular Jules incident between them, Ivan, little Ivan, was married and also had a son. So there was no point really in ever hoping that her oldest son, Vasily, would succeed to the throne. But in 1490, everything changed. That year, little Prince Ivan uh, suddenly got sick, like, out of nowhere. He had gout, and an Italian doctor, at Zoe's suggestion, was brought in because he said, I can totally cure your gout. But despite the doctor's best effort, little Prince Ivan died, and immediately after that, uh, little Ivan's son died, and rumors were spread by the people who didn't like Zoe that she poisoned him. Uh, as a way to uh, clear the way for her son Vasily. Now, this story has persisted for quite a long time, but modern historians tend to brush it off because there's pretty much no ev- ed- evidence she did it other than she had obvious, very obvious motive. Um, in my personal opinion, I don't think she did it. I think it was kind of just like a happy accident that they died because people died all the fucking time back then. And Zoe just decided to improvise from there because... Um, Prince Ivan had another son, uh, other than the first one that died. Uh, his name was Dimitri. Um, and I think if she was trying to clear a path for her son Vasily, she would have taken out both kids. <laughs> and, you know, I just think this because she created it. If she had done it, she created a succession crisis where her husband basically had to choose who he wanted to succeed him, his son or his grandson. 
And seven years after Prince Ivan and his oldest son died, the succession was still pretty up in the air because big Ivan, Ivan the third, I guess we'll call him, uh, he just couldn't make a, des- a decision. But then allegedly, Vasily and Zoe attempted to have Prince Dmitri killed, which in this case, I do believe it. I believe that they totally tried to murder him because like, they were like, oh, fuck. Is anyone going to make a decision? Um, But after this attempted murder, uh, both Zoe and her son were disgraced and banished from court. But a year later, Ivan ended up making his decision. And unfortunately for everyone, uh, Dimitri was installed as heir and made co-ruler to uh, his grandfather. And both Zoe and Vasily were not allowed to come to the ceremony. Although a year later, Ivan did forgive Vasily and Zoe for trying to murder his grandson and eventually allowed them to come back to court. Now, I imagine there was a lot of tension between Zoe and Ivan after all that had passed. Um, Especially with Zoe trying to murder his grandson. Um, But luckily, Ivan just like, he he got over it. Um, And also... He, he changed his mind pretty quickly after that. Um, in 1502, Ivan just like did a 360 and had his daughter-in-law and his grandson arrested and thrown into prison. Now, no one is sure why he suddenly had this change of heart and decided to not make Dimitri his heir and have his mother and uh, Dimitri thrown in prison. Uh, some think Zoe had something to do with it, but no one is really sure what happened. What is important now is that Vasily is going to be the next Grand Prince of Moscow. Woo! So her son's victory would have been the last important event in her life as she unfortunately died on the 7th of April, 1503, apparently of old age. But if you do the math, uh, she was only 46. So I doubt she died of old age. My mom's 47. So my mom's not dying of old age anytime soon. Anyway, (laughs) she was laid to rest in a white marble sarcophagus inside the Kremlin. Um, Unfortunately, her sarcophagus was destroyed in the 30s. Uh, luckily, her grave has been uh, relocated, and they actually preserved her skull. So we actually kind of have like a general idea of what she looked like, which is cool. With like facial reconstruction, we can like find out what she would have looked like. Um, her husband Ivan, oh my god, he was so devastated by her death. Like he really, really loved her uh, um, from like the day she died until he died two years later in 1505. Um, her son Vasily succeeded his father, and he tried his best to continue his father and his mother's work of making Russia more modern and large and one of his but one of his biggest problems was his ability to produce an heir with his first wife so uh, Vasily divorced his first wife and married again and had his long desired son who he named Ivan and as I mentioned before this kid would grow up to be the very very famous Ivan the Terrible and you know a lot of people compare Zoe to like her grandson like apparently they had very similar personalities they and they even looked a lot alike which at the start of his reign was a good thing because people like Zoe and respected her a lot. But as uh, you know, probably from the name, even if you don't know anything about Ivan the Terrible, uh, Ivan's reign wasn't that great, So, especially for Russia in the long run. Okay, let's get into legacy. Now, Zoe's husband Ivan is usually given the credit for doing the groundwork that created the Russian Empire, which is credit he totally deserves. Like, he did a lot of work, he modernized, he changed a lot. But you gotta put some respect on Zoe's name. She influenced 
most of his modernization decisions, not to mention she inspired him to give Russia like his Roman Empire aesthetic that it was going for. And I hardly think that would have happened without her influence. So go Zoe, you essentially created the Russian Empire. We love that for you. I thank you guys so much for joining me in this episode. I really, really enjoyed it. Like, this is such an interesting period in history, and Zoe is just such an interesting person. Like, she is a ruthless bitch, and I admire her so much. I'll see you guys in two weeks with a new episode. Bye! Hey guys, thanks for listening. If you have any suggestions for topics, you can just DM me on Twitter at LongMayShereign2. The N at the end of rain is replaced with a 2 instead. I'm also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and like a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, Don't forget to rate and review this podcast on all those platforms. It really actually does help the show so much and it will help me grow my audience. So I would absolutely appreciate it if you you guys could do that. All right. Uh, bye.